Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Yo, it's Robert Ory, and on the Big Shot Bob Pod, we talk about all the latest on the NBA. Joined by our man, John Sally. When I'm watching these guys playing the bubble, I'd be a way better player because I wouldn't be trying to impress the girl in the white pants in Bill 74. <laughs> the one and only Jeannie Buss. Hey, as long as he wants to play, he's welcome here. So that said, are we drafting Bronny? <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe now and throw us a rating and review. We've got new shows every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Dan Feldman of NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, and we have a really fun, wide-ranging conversation to talk about the logistics of the play and the future of star extensions, a couple of specific teams, including the Knicks and Pelicans, and where things go from here, and plenty more. I, I think you'll really enjoy it. Conversation runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. Hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. There are a lot of different avenues to explore, and we'll probably explore more than a few of them. But I think what has been most interesting to me, especially because the Sixers and Bucks played twice in the last few days, is really the the top of the Eastern Conference. And it looks like, and I mean, it's pretty definite now that there are kind of three teams and everyone else. And the the biggest difference, I would argue, between the the seed for seeding purposes is that if you're the one, you don't have to face one of the other two until the until the finals. Not to say that there are, you know, zero dangerous teams that elsewhere in the bracket. But I'm interested in how hard these teams kind of push for that and who necessarily like kind of want would structurally want it more than the other ones. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. That is the biggest factor in it uh, as far as not having to to play two of them. Um, I don't know how hard the Nets can push for it with their health issues. Right. Like they might want to. But I I mean, I guess that's really the, the they can more than they probably will, I guess I'll say, because health is most important. Um, and maybe they even can't. Um, the Bucks and 76 would probably both would like to get there if they could, um, but they're obviously coming from behind a little bit. The 76ers have the easier schedule down the stretch, right? Yes, they do. The Sixers right. actually have the single easiest schedule in the NBA as we record this. Their opponent winning percentage, this is kind of incredible. So usually you're in the 50% range, and sometimes it looks, oh, they're 52, and it looks like, oh, that's so hard. 41% winning percentage the rest of the season for for the Sixers opponents. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, and there are some teams that, you know, are look better or worse than that. And actually, I would make the argument if you're going pure statistical that their schedule is actually softer because the team that the Sixers play with the best record as of now for the rest of the season is the Atlanta Hawks, who presumably <laughs> are going to be without Trey Young. Um, Right. And so, yeah, they should have a soft enough schedule. You know, they've dealt with injuries and unavailability themselves. But I even I mean, partially, yeah, they they, especially today when they got demolished by the by the Bucks, like getting getting that one seed, it just takes some of the risk out. I think that it, it doesn't ensure that they make the conference finals, that they make the that they make the NBA finals. But it makes life a lot easier. And the other big reason to me why it's why it's potentially important is, yeah, I brought up the idea that the teams, let's from four through eight, are you know, there are teams that can be dangerous there, is that 
For me right now, I'm not thinking of any of those teams as sleeping giants. I was a heat optimist for a long time this season, and I still think there is a chance for them, significant chance for them to be better than they have been. But the, the you know, the the Celtics, the Heat, we'll see about the, the Knicks and the Hornets who just ha- and the Hawks who haven't proven it yet in the playoffs. And then the Pacers, I mean, they have talent, but TJ Warren's not coming back. We don't know if Miles Turner's coming back. So I think that's an even stronger reason to push for the one is the idea that it might be a material easier series. No guarantees, but it, it is looking that way to me. It's funny how the Bucks spent this season experimenting more, trying different things stylistically, not trying to be the dominant regular season team that they've been previous years. Obviously, even while doing that, they're still really darn good. But do you think there's any regret there? that maybe they didn't hit the balance quite right and maybe they could be in stronger position to get the one seed right now if they hadn't quite experimented as much. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that it's a very good thing, though. The, the other kind of, like, sacrificing wins for other things that comes in is not playing your star players as much. And that that's another factor that I think generally teams are not are not, they're they're going to feel good about. I'm not saying you know like there maybe in specific circumstances like it's come up with the Warriors and some of the times early in the season that they were judicious with Steph Curry like didn't save him didn't put him in two minutes earlier and that might have cost them a game and so for them it matters a little bit more because they're you know right at the bottom. But it's it, it was first of all it was hard to know kind of where things were going to go. But also for me. This season has been so wonky that I think you kind of just have to play it the way that you intended to and just see where the chips fall. And also, it would be unfair for me to criticize Mike Budenholzer for being overly experimental, <laughs> considering the charges that I have levied on him previously. Like, I, I, it's it's not fair for me to be like, oh, well, Mike Budenholzer, <laughs> obviously stick to your guns and, and get the number one seed because... Yeah, I mean, there are certain ways. I mean, you could make it, knowing what we know right now. Yeah, I mean, being the one seed is pretty meaningfully advantageous over being the two or the three. But I I want the Bucks to be more experimental. I, I mean, that was the thing that was most exciting for me about them getting P.J. Tucker. And we saw that towards the end, the very end, of that really fun game they played against the Phoenix Suns a week ago was they went to that switching scheme and it looked great. Now, that so, was like two minutes, but it looked great. <laughs> so in, in fairness, uh, my question is more in hindsight. Like, do they yes. do they regret it in hindsight? I'm with you. That yeah, given it, their, their problems in the But to answer your question... And I'd be interested in your answer. I think yes. I think in hindsight, like if you could tone it a little bit differently, shade it a little bit differently, probably would. So PJ Tucker's the wrinkle to what my next question was going to be. But does that bode well for Milwaukee getting the number one seed that they spent this time experimenting? And I think with the players they started the season with, uh, I wouldn't say they did every single thing they could and got all the reps possible, but they did a good amount of trying different things and being better prepared for the playoffs. And maybe now you can go back to, we're just going to do what it takes to win. And yeah, it's a style of play we're real comfortable with. And if somebody gets out of style, like we'll be less comfortable. Uh, But maybe that bodes well for their chances of the number one seed that they can go back to what they know except yeah i probably would like to see them do switching more and uh, be a little more comfortable with pj tucker on the other hand given pj tucker's age given his mileage uh maybe the better bet is just to keep him fresh for the playoffs rather than trying to do too many things with him I think that keeping him fresh is important, but a really significant change in dynamic this year is that if you're not in the play-in, you get basically a full week from the end of the regular season to your first playoff game. 
And I think that will be a very important element for a lot of these teams. And like, let's say the Lakers, and it looks like they're going to stay out of the seven, eight, all that, all that jazz. That'll be, I think that'll be really good for them. It'll be, and, and, and honestly, you can make an argument. It's actually going to be better for the teams that have pushed harder. You know, that you can do that, get a couple practices in. And yes, in certain circumstances, you won't know your opponents for a few days, but also with maybe a couple of small exceptions, I think that there aren't that many teams, and remember, it's best of seven series, where that's going to cause a major problem. Like, for example, let's say Philly gets the one seed. It's going to be a little bit until they find out who they're playing in the 1-8. But there also is not anybody that I'm seeing in that 1-8 that is going to be like, oh, crap, they might, you know, come out, though that team will be super hot. They will have won two games in a row. They'll be getting better, or probably, actually, potentially. Um, and they'll, and they'll, you know, jump the Sixers and get both games in Philly. Like, I don't see that team, though maybe there are some teams in the West where it's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think if the Raptors figure things out to get in that position, that means they're going to, I do think the Raptors have that talent uh, and that upside. So I haven't been able to figure out why the Raptors are not better than they are this season. But if they figure things out, if they get in, if they're hot, if they win the play-in, maybe you could talk me to them being a little dangerous. They'd still be a a lower-seeded team for a reason. They should be the underdog. But I could be talked to them being dangerous. Yeah, I, I, we got asked an interesting question, Nate and I, um, on Locker Room this past week, which was, so it was from a Raptors fan who is convinced that they're not tanking, but that they're being very, they're being overly cautious deliberately. And what he said was, he's like, is it conceptually possible that the Raptors sit guys in a playing game? And I was like, Ooh. oh my, because, because I mean, depending on where it looks like where the 10 seed in the East is going to come from, like the difference of being... Being the eight and, you know, making it in and, you know, your normal draft spot could be somewhat significant. That could be like four or five slots. And I, but my answer was it's basically nil, partially because I know just as a practical slash political matter, how insane the league office would go if the team did that. How insane would Kyle Lowry go? I, to me, if I'm a Raptors fan, I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard. I, I hate how the incentives line up this time of year. I, I hate that this is even a question. I hate that the league system makes this the teams torn in this way. But to me, it would be cool to make the play-in. Uh, it'd be cool to make the playoffs. It'd be cool to win every single playoff game possible. Like This is still the honeymoon of the championship. And just compete as much as you can. Uh, there's joy in competing. There's joy in winning. You have the greatest player in franchise history still around for this stretch run. He came clearly very close to getting traded and wasn't. Enjoy it. Try and win more games with Kyle Lowry. To me, that's the way to go. Uh, but I understand the incentive to try and get the higher pick uh, because of how this works. I, I can't stand it. Right. And so, like, as an example, right now, and granted, they don't... So let's, let's use Chicago. So right now, Chicago, they're kind of on the cusp. If they miss the playoffs their average pick so their most likely pick is ninth and so there's you know probably in that range if they made the playoffs it's 15th like that's mm-hmm. that's a and also if you get the if you have the ninth best odds you also have a let's say it's a, it's roughly a 20 percent chance of getting a top four pick like that is significant and it's not necessarily significant for these players because some of them will not be raptors some of them will be would be theoretically replaced by the top pick if they get it 
but it's it, it's also bizarre. Like I think that your your thoughts, your sentiment on this will win the day. I think that especially these players are competitive, and the organizational stuff. I think in a lot of those circumstances is going to be there. But the worry that I have to an extent about the play in is also that in normal circumstances, when you push for the eight, part of the benefit that you're getting is at least two games of revenue. Now, some of the teams that are kind of, you know, if you're pushing to get the 10, and it looks like the Wizards are at least, and maybe a couple other teams, um, the Bulls are, clearly. I mean, that was a part of the intention of the big move they made, though that was obviously about far more than this year. And there is a distinct chance for some of those teams that you get no addition, that you get, you get, you don't host any games. You don't get to have that, like, playoff game. And for the Raptors, that even gets more complicated because you're not playing in front of your fans either. Well, so the Raptors are a complication. Uh, I'm very pro play-in. I love it. I think this is uh, going to produce better basketball late in the season. Because like you said, the, the organization, like teams usually are going for it. So take the Bulls, right? They're in, what, 11th now? And you just explained what their draft situation would be if they can somehow sneak into the play-in and then into the playoffs. But it, if there were no play-in, of course they'd be tanking. Of course they'd be going for a higher pick. They wouldn't even be close to the playoffs. They'd have no chance. So now uh, they're, they're probably going to be going for it. And yes, there are consequences to going for it, but they're probably trying to win. I, I like the stratification the play-in creates. It's really valuable to be one of the top six teams. You get to go straight to the playoffs. It's better to be 7 than 8 than 9 than 10, uh, than 11 through 15. We still got to do something about this 11 through 15 of teams tanking in there. And yeah, maybe a couple on the higher end will be going for the play-in. But I think the play-in is great for inducing competitive basketball late in the season. I'm excited about the the week the week gap for the top teams too because that's a real benefit. You know, you think about especially this year how big of a push it's been. You know, uh, when you whenever you see a team getting multiple days off on the schedule consecutively, like oh <laughs> oh wow they're gonna they're gonna be awesome. Like they're gonna be super fresh and and having that time to do some practices to take some to rest. I think is going to be very nice. But a week is also not so long that I think they're going to be super rusty. And that that's the the point that I've made before when there's there has been talk about giving teams buys, let's say, so kind of the you could call it in certain ways the opposite side of the play. And I think not playing for the entirety of a 7 game series, so let's say roughly 2 weeks, to me that's too long. Like that is that is too long of a time off. I think that the other team would have a material advantage. And yeah, I mean, you could argue that the benefits are worth it, especially with a reduced chance of injury and everything else. But I like I like the week. I think that the week is going to be is going to be a good amount of time. And also, like the teams that have to play, they're not playing a ridiculous amount. The maximum amount of extra games they're playing is two. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a good balance. I, in theory, I like the idea of a buy because it's it's you know an advantage, right? I want to make the regular season more meaningful. I'm not really for shortening the regular season. I know you're more open to that. Oh, I'm a staunch um, proponent of it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I'm not for that. I, I don't think it's good for really anybody involved to be giving up that revenue. I also don't think it really serves fans in the same way because it, if there are fewer games, ticket prices go up. And I think you end up pricing out uh, the marginal fan. Uh, and I don't think that's good. But I do think if you're going to be playing all these games, you need to find a way to make them more meaningful. There are too many games that 
either teams don't care about or even worse that they want to lose. Um, and so if you have buys, there's, there's more incentive uh, to, to get a higher seed to win these games, right? Like we're talking right now in the East, the way it shakes out this year, significant difference between one versus two and three. But is there that big of a difference between two and three? Probably not. I'd like there to be some system where, you know, you want to be higher, where it really matters. The higher you go in the standings, the better. Uh, you know, is there a difference between the four or five this year? Is there a difference between being six or seven? Like, I'm not sure how much these things matter this year in a lot of years. Uh, but the buy, yeah, you do bring up some good downsides with this. I mean, my solution to that has always been choosing top seeds to choose their opponents. I, I think that's the it it, 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 it it clears up a lot of those potential issues, especially in the first round. And it, it, yeah. creates, it creates some fun animosity and especially like... In the first round, if we're, I, I mean, I would support it in all rounds because I think it makes more sense. But in the first round, you're all starting at the same time anyway. Like, they're, they're, the, the downside of choosing your opponents in later rounds is that you have to have everybody finish before everyone starts. But generally speaking, the NBA pretty much does that anyway. But mm-hmm. even if you're like the people who believe that, who give more credence to that argument, and I understand, it, I'm not saying it's, you know, garbage or anything like that, that it, it doesn't matter in the first round because, you know, it's that Saturday, Sunday. It's everybody's doing the same thing. So I got to, I, the one problem with picking your opponents, and I do like it overall, but one problem is, well, if you're in that five through eight range, uh, it doesn't matter where you finish. And so now your games are meaningless. Well, it and, matters. It matters in terms of it matters. So if you can get into the four, it matters. And also right. like you could make an argument that it's not about record. It's about how well you're playing. And so you could see some interesting ones of teams Maybe, you know, resting guys a little bit before the end and then trying to look strong so they, you know, don't get picked by the good teams or something like that. Like, but I also, I think that you can't, you can't make it meaningful for everyone. You just have to try to do the best you can. Yeah, that's true. And maybe you combine the, leave the play in along with choose your opponent, which leads to another question I had, uh, you know, so what are the, in the average year, and we can even talk about the specific teams in this position this year, but in the average year, the average conference, how likely is it that the two teams that advance out of the play-in are more dangerous than the average six seed? Uh, because the six seed you know, just makes it, they have that time off for better or worse, uh, but they don't necessarily have to be playing well to be the six. They could have backed their way into the six, whatever. If you're going to win the play-in, you have to be peaking right at that moment leading into that first round series. Uh, and so if we're not doing choose your opponent, does it, could it turn out in some years, in too many years, where the one and two seeds are at a disadvantage and the three seed has the advantage by not having to play a team that win the play? Or does it not matter because if you're a one, two, or three seed, you should beat any six, seven, or eight seed no matter how they got there? I think it's more the latter, but I actually think that it's a different stratification. You were thinking of it six versus seven. I think it's seven versus eight because remember that the... The seven seed, whoever gets the seven seed, that has to have been the seventh or eighth. You know, they have to have been the seventh or eighth. Whereas the eight seed could be eight, could be seven, eight, nine, or ten, and they have to have won their last game. So they what also then, had to have lost one. So what then? So like, the let's say, and maybe part of it is just because I've been really in tune to this because of you know some teams like the Warriors potentially being in the ninth seed <laughs> mix at different moments in time. Is I think there's a distinct chance that a team in the nine ten is better than a team in the seven eight, but they can't get the seven. So mm. there could be some circumstances where a team that was you know that was good for a period of time and fell off. Now you could make an argument that can also be the eight seed and then they win and then they become the seven. Like that is possible too. So I guess it's just where where do you think the good team could come from? And the answer is it could come from anywhere. Uh, but yeah, I think there is a distinct possibility. 
that it that it is a factor. But also, I I think that what is more important is that if you're a one, two, or three, assuming reasonable health, and there will be times that those teams don't have it, you quote unquote should be able to handle it. And the situations, I I believe that being able to choose your opponents with that that's a fair solution to this problem too. Um, but I think that. It would be rare but possible for there to be a team that is so dangerous in that line. And we, like the exception to the prove the rule might have been the Lakers if, they, if things had gone a little bit worse <laughs> for them during this time. But generally speaking, if, if you are the one or the two in particular, you should be able to handle your business. Like that's not well, – you know, like, how, how good – like yes, there can be a seven or eight that is stronger than the six. Absolutely. But – you should be able to handle sixes too. Sure. I don't know if the Lakers would fit this because, you know, they had the injury. Like, we all know they're the stronger team. They wouldn't be a team peaking at the end. They'd just be a team that happened to get healthy at the end. And to me, that's a little different than, like, a flawed team with a record that, you know, throughout the year puts them there. You know, these types of teams go through ups and downs. That's why they're in this range in the standings. Uh, and you just don't want to face them when they're riding hot. Yeah, and... There is also, I mean, we've seen it throughout the years, the randomness of having an opponent that is, their quality is not representative of the seed. And that can be either in a good way, like, or in a, they're outperform, they're better than their seed, or it can be in a, they're worse than their seed. And so, like, Denver could end up being a fascinating dynamic to watch there. I mean, I, I haven't heard the severity of Will Barton's hamstring injury. I mean, they now have Jamal Murray, unfortunately, of course, but then they also have Monte Morris who's dealing with a hamstring thing and Will Barton that's dealing with one. And now we're in the point of the year where an injury that's longer than a week or two might be the rest of the regular season and might extend into the playoffs. So like, I think people who are listening to this, who when you start to hear things that sound more severe be thinking about the playoffs if it's a team that that is relevant and so yeah i mean there is the distinct chance that denver is weaker than the average four even though they might there's a pretty decent chance they're going to have the reigning mvp and Jokic is unbelievable he was wonderful in the playoffs last year but not having your second best player is a significant disadvantage and they don't have a true replacement for him on roster and that's the other element that is hard to reconcile within our within the NBA's current rigid seating system is the I mean but you can make an argument if the Nuggets end up in the 4-5 that it's like well the you know it's not as ridiculous as when like the 3 ends up with a weaker opponent than the 2 seed or something like that because the 5 is you know if you if you think of the split as like 1 through 4 is one thing and 5 through 8 is another then it's the best of the 5 through 8 that gets it and you're mostly in this year's structure, it's teams that are going to be fighting to move forward to try to get that spot. But it has happened. I mean, you can think back to, was that the Wizards one year that they're like, their entire team was hurt? And so somebody got to play them. I think that was a 3-6 series. Um, this was like in the Gilbert Arenas era. Um, mm, I don't remember that series. There was a year I think the Grizzlies got in and were... Oh, the Suicide Squad Grizzlies? Yeah. yeah. That that happened too. Um, but yeah, so... I. I I would love to see a system that helped that. You can't solve everything, as I said earlier, but that, that got you a little bit closer. And what's really interesting, and this is, again, an anomalous situation. Let's say the Nuggets get the four and you did the teams get to choose their opponents. They would theoretically face the strongest of the bottom four teams in terms of seeding because the well, other that's teams That's a question would... I had. That's a question I have. In your choose your opponents, uh, in your ideal version of it, who can, who can pick whom? 
uh, is it the top four seeds pick among the bottom four seeds or or could uh, you know let's say the Jazz win the West is probably expected can they pick Denver let's say Denver finishes fourth could they could they so pick Denver I think there are two interesting ideas I think one is top half chooses bottom half the mm-hmm. other one that I've heard which I thought was a really interesting one is you can pick teams that are three spots lower than you mm, even if they're like so so basically then the so then basically the the Jazz could pick the Nuggets but the Suns could not Okay. But I think part of what you're – to me, it, it's the incentives versus like how hard do you push for the three. I, I think as at least as a preliminary one, pro, also you don't want to make it too complicated. I think you just go top – chop chooses bottom. But in terms of like let's call it a version of equity, yeah, I think there's a reasonable argument. And yeah, the Nuggets are – Potentially an exception as a weaker team, but I still. First of all, I still think the Jazz would choose somebody else. Like I think they yeah, would well, choose the eight. I think we were just talking about the Nuggets hypothetically. I still think the Nuggets are a championship contender. Although oh, I don't, you know, I, I don't think they're a championship. I think they're dangerous. But the problem with so, so I draw a narrower championship line than most people because the problem is like you have to win four series. Like I think they could win a series against a lot of teams, but I don't think they're going to do it four times. That's a lot. So I, I guess I thought this more before Barton got hurt, uh, before Monte Morris got hurt, and it's getting a little tougher. But when it was just Jamal Murray, look, I had them firmly in championship contender, and I go with a little bit wider of a list than most people. Uh, so it's no surprise that I had them and still and, and you didn't. Uh, but I look at this team of good guard depth, but I, again, that's counting uh, Will Barton and Monte Morris. We'll see where they are. But also Composo, uh, you know, I think they'll be okay there. And then I think they've got other guys who, who can be shooters, namely Michael Porter. Uh, you know, I, I think he'll be eager to shoot more without Jamal Murray. They're going to miss Murray, no question. I'm not trying to say he's meaningless, but I do think they had the pieces with all the right breaks. To me, that's what a championship contender is. Are you a team of ca- capable of winning the title with all the reasonable breaks? Like, like not, not I like think anything your, unreasonable. Your but. system, your system, I think would have been more would have been more open to Miami, who got very close to winning the championship. You know. If they had been healthy, if they had been healthy in the finals, I, I still would have, you know, still expected the Lakers to win the series. But it would have been much closer. And maybe if the injury luck had gone the other way, Miami absolutely could have won. Like if they, right. if, if the Lakers had been in, as injured as Miami ended up being, Miami and Miami had been as healthy as the Lakers ended up being, I think Miami wins that series. And so, uh, I think, if, if you listen to people in Miami, uh, if both teams were at full strength, Miami would have won that series. They could have. I, I mean, I think I it was. I think it was that, a chance. But it, but, but it was a chance. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think that. There is merit to that approach. I I also look back on just, you know, like where champions usually end up and there aren't there are a lot of teams that kind of get around there, but there aren't that many that actually win the whole damn thing. And I think that sure. some of that is just by virtue. And, and so like, yeah, I mean, you can make an argument like the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, if the Warriors had been full strength, maybe they don't win and maybe Cleveland beats the Warriors in 2015 if both teams are fully healthy. But you can I think the reason it all, it usually ends up working out is because you have to be good enough to get there, and then at that point, if it's a roll of the dice, it's still generally a roll of the dice of two worthy teams. Yeah, like worthy. Uh, can... Worthy is the wrong word, but two teams in that team. Mm, sure, sure. Um, I mean, I look at the Mavericks in 2011. Like, how many people didn't have them as championship contenders going into the playoffs? Uh, and that turned out to be wrong because they won the championship. So that's mm-hmm. why I go with a wider view. 
sure. of can you win with that makes you a contender. Well, there are degrees of contenders. Don't get me wrong. I have the Nuggets like at the very bottom if I still have them in. Uh, but but I do still have them. I think with the right breaks they could do it. So I didn't want to sound like we're just hating on the Nuggets there. Yeah. Uh, but in a theoretical word world, I do like that three team margin and seed idea for select your opponent because the high stakes idea of let's just say there's a four seed. We're going to call them the Denver Nuggets. Uh, that there's a four seed that's had some injuries uh, that doesn't look as strong. The high stakes of will the number one seed pick them or not? Uh, because the two seed can't. Uh, so it's like all or nothing there where they're going to get saved into a better matchup or not. Uh, that'd be fascinating. It, it would be really interesting. And there are a lot of different wrinkles that could come in through various things if they wanted to do it that also, you know, don't have to. And I one of the things that I'm really interested in that the plan is framed a little bit for me, though I felt this way before, is especially because of the weird structure of this year's playoffs, I'm very interested in how teams enter the play in into the playoffs and so like you have this group in the east from four to nine let's say because like the pacers i'm less let's say four to eight because i'm just less interested in the pacers <laughs> if they're going to be this hurt then I, I'm, I'm less there like the hornets are going to be healthier so we'll get there but some of these teams are probably going to come in pretty hot some of them some of them probably are not and some of them will be getting players back i mean the hornets hopefully getting you know they're getting lamella back sooner but hopefully getting gordon hayward back the hawks we don't know the exact timeline with trey young what's going to happen at some point but you know like how are the knicks looking i mean i was thinking uh, i was working on a schedule thing th- uh, this morning and i was thinking about i think there's a pretty good chance that the knicks end up in the four five which would be absolutely fascinating probably against atlanta or boston right i like, would think against i was gonna say atlanta before atlanta was more likely before trey got hurt yeah now now i'd say yeah so like what i was thinking is also can you imagine boston new york round one would be amazing <laughs> yes um let's get all the people in new york mad would you pick the knicks against anybody any of the top four any anybody no 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 anybody who could who they could play in the first round like would would I'm not saying they can't win I absolutely think they could win a first I th- round series, I think they can but would you pick them I I don't think I would their their offense scares me a lot and yeah. what is hard for the Knicks is that while I'm super impressed with Thibodeau and their defense and and how hard those guys are trying is that offensively they don't really have any counter punches. You know, like they, they can do things a certain way. They can win games one way. And if that's not working, it's going to be very difficult for them. And generally speaking, A, when you make the playoffs, you're facing stronger opposition because you take out the, you know, you take, theoretically, let's say at least, you take out the 14 worst teams in the league. It's not rigidly true. You're doing that. And because you get the the extra attention, and and where I really think this goes goes is, and you know, Nate and I doing the live show for all these years, is knowing who to leave open and who to guard, mm-hmm. and that is more damaging for the Knicks than most teams because they have a lot of players they that that are limited shooters that are limited in specific ways. You can get the scouting report, and so like I think Alfred Payton is a good example. Like Alfred Payton. I mostly understand why he has a significant role in in, Tib- in in Tibbs' scheme, but he is going to be more of a liability in a Knicks playoff series than he has been in the regular season. Yes, 
I think you hit on something there. The Nick, this is both a compliment and maybe an insult, but I don't want it to be an insult. I'm sorry if it sounds like it. The Knicks try really hard. That's great. That gets you really far in the regular season. In the playoffs, everybody tries hard. The Knicks are well-prepared, understanding what their opponents want to do. Uh, that's great in the regular season. I guess really far in the regular season. Not every team Every team is so well-prepared. In the playoffs, every team is. Uh, so, But I also think one thing that can translate, you, know, you say they don't have these offensive counters, and I agree, but I also think, man, Julius Randle's having a heck of a year. He uh, he's my pick for most improved player. And I think the way they play, it reminds me of Jokic. It, off, I'm just talking offensively for, for right now, but maybe there's some defensive parallels. Uh, the I, you know, it's a style that I think can translate to the playoffs. Now, I'm not saying he's as good as Jokic by any means, but, but I'm, all I'm saying is, can they beat the Hawks or the Celtics in the first round? I'm not, you know, talking about the you know where Jokic and the Nuggets have been uh, deeper in the Western Conference playoffs. But the way Julius Randle pl- plays, the Knicks, you know, they're not a fast-paced team by any means. Uh, they play a style that I think will translate well to the playoffs at first. Do they have the counters? Do they have the talent to counter? I'm with you, no, but maybe uh, a team won't get them out of their comfort zone so easily. The other f- fun wrinkle for the Knicks in terms of if if they end up playing slower games, and that's not a guarantee, but if they end up doing that is, generally speaking, the fewer possessions a game has, <laughs> the more variance matters. And there, mm-hmm. will be, there will be games, I mean, they've been shooting a lot better recently, and I think that's made a huge difference. It's been a big part of the success that they've had recently. And... That could continue. I mean, I, I don't think they're necessarily as good of shooters as they have been during this during this win streak. But they also do some of the things that the Knicks do well do carry over to a reasonable degree. So, like for example, protecting the rim really well. That mm-hmm. that is something that if you can if you can do it consistently, that really can make a difference in the playoffs. They've generally de- they've generally defensive rebounded well, and teams sometimes go after the offensive glass more in the playoffs. It kind of depends on the the situation and the Knicks have been much better this year about not fouling and Mm -hmm. that will be harder to do. You know, when you face generally better opposition, depending on who they're facing, like that can get there. But like, that was the thing I remember I had a, I did a podcast with Jared Dupin midway through the season. I was talking, you know, my skepticism about the Knicks defense. They're still currently third. It was the, was that like, they weren't this good, but that the fundamentals were actually quite strong. And I mm-hmm. and so it's happened that things have continued beyond you know that they've been, they've been better and everything else, and but I, I do think that is something they can hang their hat on. The challenge is going to be the feedback loops. So can they get enough stops to get out and transition? Because they're probably going to need that. I mean, for example, I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly where the Knicks are in half court offense, but it's it's not from what I recall, it's not particularly robust. And the challenge there is that. If if you're if you can't get buckets in that way, there again there just aren't as many paths. And can't is different than like doesn't all the time. So so the Knicks right now they're twenty third in half court offense. But the other concerning thing is they're twenty eighth in the proportion of their shots uh, possessions that take place in the half court. And so basically they're not they're not running much either. And that duality is a problem. Uh, and right now, yes, but you could also make the argument in the playoffs that all teams have fewer opportunities to run yep. uh, the way playoff basketball typically goes. That's and so true. at least the Knicks are more comfortable in the style. It's the Bane argument, like you, like <laughs> I was, I was born in the dark. Like there you go. Oh, that that I, I enjoy. I enjoy that. I mean, so yeah, I, I and 
I really don't want the idea that like I'd probably pick any reasonable opponent over the Knicks to be in any way a slight on the season they've had. They've been they've defied my expectations and almost everybody mm-hmm. else's, and a, a fair portion of it is really encouraging in terms of the way they're going. R.J. Barrett has looked much better this year. the 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 Thibodeau hire looks a lot better than it did before. Mm-hmm. They, you know, some my of coach the, of the year. Yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly an argument for it, especially when you and I both believe that defense is something that a coach can sway more, and their mm-hmm. defense is markedly better even if you account for the improvement in personnel, but also like the decision that he made to empower Julius Randle is the reason their offense is, is where it is and not much worse. Like they, yes. th- that made a world of difference. And one player who it made a world of difference for is RJ Barrett. Like RJ Barrett now is a very different player than I think some believed he would be as a prospect, but he's also to me more valuable in this role than he would be in his other one. He's better at this than he would be at, at being the primary initiator on the Knicks. Um, yeah, I, so I I think we were a similar view on R.J. Barrett coming in, if I recall, like that, you know, his style of play, is he ever going to be good enough to fit that style of play, right? That was the, the knock on him. Yes. Uh, but the one thing I believed in was this guy, ha- it seemed like had a good work ethic. It seems yeah. like oh, he improves. It seems like he's got, he's going to be on the track to figure some things out, even if I don't know exactly what they are. So that's what you're seeing. I was relatively low on him. Uh, and I did not think he was good as a rookie. Uh, am I surprised he's improved quite this much into a second year? Sure. Uh, but the reason I still had him, I don't know where exactly I had him on my draft board, but I had five, six, I don't know exactly, so as four maybe even. As someone who was relatively down on him, I still had him fairly high up because I thought he would figure some things out. By the way, um, we're recording this, and the Spurs just beat the Pelicans. They're now, I believe, four and a half games up on on the Pelicans and everyone else for the ten seed. I think we, I think we're getting pretty close to knowing who the ten play in plus teams in the West are. What a disaster in New Orleans this year! <laughs> I feel like we say that a lot of years. It's it's weird. Like it, I. I'm of two minds about it because I was, I mean, if you're looking in the macro, if you're looking in the long view, I would argue that this is an immensely successful New Orleans Pelicans season because <laughs> they found out this version of Zion Williamson. Like they, this, what he's been for the last two and a half months, like that is a fundamentally different player. And theoretically with proper management and personnel decisions, you can build a team differently with the knowledge that he as your as like your lead guy who has the ball in his hands all the time like that you can build a very good good and dangerous offense around that part is is to me a success and if you're if the idea was that the new orleans pelicans this year was about figuring out where who you want who he who zion is and what you want around him i think that they got a lot more information and a lot of good positive information about that however (laughs) They threw a lot of resources at being better right now. That has not particularly worked out. And David Griffin, for the second year in a row, largely bet on a theory of the team, especially when we're talking about centers, that doesn't make a ton of sense with their personnel or where the league is going. And like the the way that I've criticized the Pelicans' defense before is... Stan Van Gundy talked, and I mean, he was an unbelievable announcer when he when he did that, and I, I missed him in the booth this year. But he talked, you know, pretty effusively about how well the Bucks defended, and I think that there obviously is something to that. I mean, Milwaukee when the Lopez when when they had 
the Lopez-Giannis combination, they largely, other than opponent three-point shooting, have defended that way this year anyway. And so like I described the math problem as you're not only reducing your opponent's rim attempts, but also their success at the rim. And ideally, you're also dominating the defensive glass and not fouling that much. Like that is, if you can hit all four of those checkboxes, then giving up a bunch of threes is fine. <laughs> like basically, <laughs> you know, there are exceptions if you're facing really good teams and you don't want them to be wide open and all that type of stuff. But the problem with emulating that, that the New Orleans Pelicans ran into, is you have to actually check those four boxes if that's what you're <laughs> going to do. And so New Orleans this year, their defense is dramatically, you know, is dramatically worse. Going into today's action, they're 27th in defense. And a big part of that is, okay, so how are they doing in those four checkboxes? Defensive rebounding? Yeah, they've been very good. Not a huge surprise when you're playing a center and Zion, and they're generally playing pretty big at the four. They've been playing big at the three a lot this year. Fouling? Mm-hmm. And good rebounding guards. Good Not rebounding guards, size, too. But just yeah, Lonzo's done well, too, and, and a bunch of other guys. So that part, yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say they checked that box. Fouling, they're middle of the road. I would say you want to be a little bit better if that's what you're, you know, if you're committing the resources, I think you want to kind of be top 10, maybe top five, because other teams aren't doing that. You know, like you're, right. you're sacrificing there. Then the other two are opponent frequency and opponent success of the rim. Opponent frequency right now, they're decent, but not amazing. They're middle of the road, though I think some of that is the Jackson Hayes at the beginning of the year minutes, which were an absolute disaster. He's been better since. But the big, big problem is rim success. New Orleans is giving up the fourth highest opponent shooting percentage of the rim this year, 66.2% before today's game. And that just unravels the whole thing. You, if you're like, even if you regressed their opponent, so opponents are shooting 39% from three and the median in the NBA this year is 37. So if you regress that back, I did this math a few weeks ago, their defense looks better, but it's still not good. And you can argue they don't have great personnel at a lot of positions. I mean, Zion is still not, he's still bad, mostly defensively. Brandon Ingram underperforms his physical gifts. And their guards, it's kind of dependent on who's on play. Eric Bledsoe's been way worse on defense this year than he has been previously. They've had to go through a lot of guards. They played some smaller dudes, all the other stuff. And that's the that's the big problem for me is that not only did they did they hired a coach and that's what he wanted to do, but they also bought groceries that said that was kind of the only thing they could do, but also they can't do well. Like Steven Adams is not a great rim protector. It's not, that isn't something that he's been, you know, at other points in his career, they've, they, you know, the Thunder teams that succeeded defensively did it in a couple different ways. They, they're, he's a wonderful defensive rebounder and some of these other things, but it, it, and, and what frustrates me so much with David Griffin and with the Pelicans is that if all they had done was do the Drew Holiday trade and get back what they did, and they didn't extend Adams, it would have been so much easier to pivot right now. But instead, they have Adams, not a terrible contract, but I would say also not a positive value contract. And because of all the other commitments that they made, and you know, Brandon Ingram, not saying that's a bad contract in any way, shape, or form, but Ingram and now the cap holds for Lonzo and for Josh Hart and everything else, it's like it's harder for them to change direction. So you have a really good young player, and I believe Nate said this before, and I, I don't believe it as firmly as he does, but I do believe it that you want to think about Science Prime as being sooner because he's there's a chance that his body breaks down. What he's doing is completely insane. And so I think you do want to go on more of like an age 23 to 26 timeline rather than like 26 to 29, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so, but I mean, it is, it is also the thing that's been frustrating for me with the Pelicans also in that respect is like, yeah, their record isn't great. I mean, they're currently 26 and 34, but 
When you consider the volume of injuries and all the other stuff that is, I mean, remember the Grizzlies, their best player was out for a while. Like this is, it isn't like all of these other teams that are above them have had this amazing run of luck. No, not necessarily. And like the Pelicans had some rough stretches too, but it does seem like the opportunity, even if they weren't dramatically better, the opportunity was there for them to make a little bit more noise. Also, I'm bitter because I want to see them in the play in and now that looks a lot less likely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to me, the the Pelicans are still in good shape for the long term. They still have Zion. I still think Brandon Ingram, whatever he's turned into, is a really talented young player. Uh, if he doesn't work out there, there'll be teams that want him. I still think he has high value, even on the, the max contract. I'm a believer in his value because of his upside, maybe more so than what he can do right now. And that's knowing he was named an All-Star. That probably even helps his value, right, that he has it that. Does attached to his brand uh, but to me the failure is just like you said you made this effort the coach you hired was a win now coach to de- to instill these better defensive habits you you got uh steven adams who i really look at as kind of a crutch for zion because Zion can't do or won't do or doesn't do whatever the dirty work right now the defending all those things like you bring somebody in you're doing all these things to 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 set the tone right now uh, and you failed pretty miserably this year that that stinks but their future is bright because they have zion they have branding and they have, still have all those extra picks not i guess not all of them most of those extra picks uh from that drew holiday trade uh I know there has been a sense of panic a little bit because Zion said how much he loved New York. And there's been the speculation of could he be the guy who finally takes his qualifying offer and and does that instead of the max contract. Uh, I looked something up. I got a trivia question for you. Do you know the last two number one picks uh, who hit restricted free agency at all? Like, let alone whether or not they took their qualifying offer, who even became restricted free agents? Oof, I do not know, but I bet it's been at least 15 years. Yeah. So, Glenn Robinson? Uh, uh, well, so it oh, because contracts be, were different then. Right. It was 99 that, that we hit the, the rookie scale Yeah, it was the, the Glenn Robinson's actually, I believe, part of the inspiration for that. Yes, yes. He, yes, he got that giant deal and uh, absolutely was a, a big reason for that push. I'll, I'll let you tell me. All right. So the last one was Greg Oden, who was drafted in 2007. He took his qualifying offer. There was a ton of stuff going on there. He had the injury issues. Weird situation. And then the one before that was all the way drafted in 2001, Kwame Brown. Uh, wow. Other than that, Anthony Bennett got took a buyout even during his rookie scale contract, became an unrestricted free agent. All the other number one picks, they all got contract extensions. They all signed them. So I'm not saying that Zion absolutely will. I'm not saying it's impossible he takes his qualifying offer. But man, the president is very strong for number one picks somehow some way to get extended. Yeah, I, I I'm not advocating for it for Zion. I mean, the last the, I've only ever advocated for it once, and what I, I'm sorry, New Orleans, it was Anthony Davis because the Pelicans were so poorly run then, and it looked like it looked like they were going to be for a while. I would say, you know, like especially with some of the decisions that Gail Benson has made, you know, hire, having a better medical staff and all that, like the Pelicans are a much better run organization than they were then. But generally speaking, I mean, yes, it is a big risk to take. Um, I, I, I like the idea of players exhibiting more agency. I know that some don't like it. But the other thing is I just don't like the draft. So I think that having, you know, like going that. So I'm not going to advocate for it for Zion, especially because I think the Pelicans have a long way to go and I think they'll be a good team. But And, and I, I think those fears are largely, as you kind of were getting to, they're largely unfounded. But it happens from time to time. They have eyes for something else. But what what's going to be interesting to me kind of in that respect is, and well, with Zion, I guess he's going to get that max qualifying offer anyway, if he, you know, assuming, he, you know, wherever, he, wherever it goes, 
is well well for for the max qualifying offer unless it's changes in this cba i was pretty sure in the last one you get both you get the max you get qualifying both. offer no what and, i mean but what i mean right. by that is the other wrinkle that hasn't been i don't think sufficiently utilized is signing a shorter contract for your first card you know like getting getting to it early i mean we're seeing all we saw a little bit of that um with the player options in the fourth year or you know fifth year player options for mitchell and for tatum i think both of those teams are going to regret those pretty severely but i'm very interested you know like the gordon hayward situation was different for a lot of reasons back when he you know signed that when the jazz basically told him go out and get an offer and he got a three plus one i you know i would advocate for a lot of players to you know, especially younger players to go after that model, especially if you're getting life-changing money. And we haven't really seen that much. Now, teams can exert through that uh, maximum qualifying offer that can exert more pressure. But I think there's a lot of value to hitting unrestricted free agency as early as you, or not as early as you can, but relatively early. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, you, you, but you brought up the max qualifying offer. I mean, by far the most likely thing is Zion signs a contract extension. Oh, never yeah. Gets restricted oh, free by far. Like, I'd say, um, what? 95 five like 95% five percent that might be a little high but yeah somewhere around that it's not crazy um but you could still take a shorter max extension if you want um I looked into this last year because of Pascal Siakam so since 1999 rookie class 32 players have signed max rookie sale extensions and I define max based on the starting salary just eight of those 32 were uh shorter than the longest allowable length uh and it really hasn't been since Chris Paul and Darren Williams in 2008, uh, where it was the player's choice, seemingly. Mm. Uh, since then, we have Kevin Love with the Timberwolves. We oh, know that God. definitely wasn't his choice. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins with the Kings. They were unwilling to give the fifth year because of some concerns about his attitude. And Siakam seems like it was Toronto's choice. Uh, so the ones where it was the player's choice were Darren Williams, Chris Paul, and then famously LeBron, Wade, and Bosh back in 2006 took the shorter extensions and then wound up playing together in Miami. Uh, but it's very rare that a player is good enough to get the max, but for some reason it works out where both he and the team don't want just the longest possible contract. Yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. I I think that might happen more often now. I mean, maybe that's the that's the kind of ripple effect of what LeBron, you know, signing those short contracts and everything else has hasn't really reached its way to, but I think that it will. And I think it matters in certain ways more for players of that age because there's more variance in terms of where your career is going. Like that where you you know, like it I think it's a little bit different. Now, part of why it happens for guys in their late tw- late twenties is that the time is now. You know, so like the you don't have as much feeling out time. So like Kawhi, for example, or obviously LeBron at basically any point in his adult life, you know, you're you're in title contention, you don't want to waste a year you know, like, you know, kind of unnecessarily. So I wonder if that's going to happen more. And I, my instinct is that it won't be Zion, but I do think it's going to happen at some point soonish. Well, who's the trendsetter? LeBron with these short contracts or Anthony Davis just signed the longest contract possible. And then if you want to force a trade, you can. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting idea that has has come up a few times is the, you know, get it and then, but what I don't like about that, and we might even see in certain circumstances, there being kind of like a, I, I, you know, you know how I am with like under the table type of stuff, like in understanding, because I think about it more in terms of like the, the letter of the law. That it's like, for this is why I said Giannis shouldn't sign the designated veteran extension with the Bucks is you're giving too much power to the team. You are conceding. So I said basically like Giannis shouldn't sign this because no player as good as him should ever sign it. And because you're basically saying the the entirety of my prime 
my team is going to be chosen at least in significant part by by the Milwaukee Bucks and or by whoever is holding my contract at that moment in time. And as a player, maybe it's because I'm a crazy control freak, which I am, um, <laughs> is that I just wouldn't be comfortable with that. And I think that there, when you're you're mitigating financial risk for sure, but you also have a ton of money by that point. Like if you are, and if you are the Giannis, AD, LeBron level of player, like Kevin Durant is proof of concept here. Like you're going to get a max contract even if you get hurt. And so I think that those times. Players should think about it a little bit. Diff- should should think about it a little bit differently. They should wield that power. But what I'm interested in, like obviously, my hope is that the Bucks are awesome. I hope they, I hope they, you know, win a championship in the next two years. And, and Drew is exactly what they wanted, and everything else. But it is interesting to think about: was there some sort of conversation that, like, if it if it goes south, if it becomes clear that they are not a championship contender, that there is an understanding that at that point they will make a move. And that maybe they will not do rigidly the single best asset return. Maybe they will listen to him at least in part of the process. Yeah, that idea has definitely floated a lot as a possibility over the summer. And ever since then, uh, I've been trying to figure out, well, on the outside, are there any clues we could ever get to know that's the case? Uh, How could we tell from the outside that, yeah, there is this wink-wink, if you want to move on, we'll accommodate you, versus, hey, you signed it, you're ours, Uh, let's go, let's go try and win, like, I don't know. I don't know if we'd ever be able to tell from the outside. Uh, maybe maybe we won't even be able to tell when push comes to shove. Maybe it'd be a step. I don't know. I haven't seen any clues one way or the other. Uh, do you see any reason to suspect that is that type of arrangement is in place or is not in place? No, I don't have any yeah. reason. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that if I were a play, it, but here's the other part. It's a completely non-binding promise that might be made by somebody who's not even in the decision-making capacity. Because remember, if the Bucks fall out of championship contention, John Horst probably isn't going to be their general manager anymore. And is, yeah, new, but G- that- is new GMX really going to really going to go, oh, well, I mean, yes, maybe they will because relationships with agents are really important and you get into all that. And And this would also be a deal, especially for a player like Giannis, this would be a deal with ownership. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess it would really, there are, that's a good point. It would be an ownership level decision, not a general manager level decision. That's, that's a good, very good point. So I, you know, this absolutely could be in place and I, I was with you for the most part. I didn't think – basically, if you're going by the book and following the rules, I did not think it was a good thing for Giannis to decide. But I also kind of believe if he didn't sign the extension, it would have hurt the Bucks' title chances this year. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it w- and so that's not what he wants. Like, I do believe, clearly, because he signed the extension, Giannis wanted to be in Milwaukee this year. I'm not 100% sure what he wants beyond that and what he'll want – because he could have made the decision next summer, right? That was the whole thing. You can wait and make this next summer. Do you want to continue to be in Milwaukee? Great, sign it. If you don't, now you have the ability. Uh, he just could never – last summer, he couldn't know how he'd feel next summer, right? That's the, the the catch on it. But he wanted to be here this year, and he wants to win a championship. It kind of would stink to be able to exercise that power and hurt your chances of winning a championship in the process. Yeah, and I think that might have been a factor. And you, you think about the way – those short-term contracts can wreak havoc with an organization. And, like, it's there are certain circumstances where that is, you know, like, I, I think LeBron would argue that his short-term contracts in Cleveland were both mm-hmm. a negative for the franchise long-term and a very, very big positive for them in the short-term. And, I mean, part of the reason, arguably, that they won a championship. Yep. And I think that... But I also think that it works differently in the Cavs situation, even though, you know, they're both... 
Midwestern and they're not the biggest markets in the world, partially because Dan Gilbert was unequivocally willing to spend. And so mm-hmm. I think that turning the screws to him and considering the contentious history between LeBron and Dan Gilbert, that he kind of needed to wield that leverage and he did wield that leverage. And I'm, I wonder, I think that it would have, it would have been more complicated for the Bucks. And and then the other, the other wrinkle that I've always found so interesting about the Giannis situation is how, how confident were they and when were they confident? Because this is the idea of like, were they making the moves that the, like John Horst made? Were they doing that to secure the commitment or were they doing that knowing mm-hmm. the commitment was coming? Because I think both are plausible. Yes. And uh, b- before we get into that, I just want to say one other difference between LeBron and Giannis. LeBron signed in Cleveland, and yeah, it was a one plus one at first, but he chose Cleveland over Miami. That was a huge signal of his commitment. And it took us a little while to think, oh, is it possible he could actually leave? And LeBron even said, I want to finish my career in Cleveland at one point. Uh, you know, so there, there were all these reasons to believe, yeah, he wanted to be in Cleveland. Yeah, he's structuring like like this to put some pressure on, and we understood there was a chance he would leave but he picked cleveland if if Giannis had just gone into this year as a contract year it'd been very different because that's not picking milwaukee right and that ties in years ago i wrote a piece for real gm about the third contract and that's when you find out what a player really wants because that's the Mm -hmm. first time that they get real power and that's a great it's a great point to make and it shifts a lot of those dynamics that third contract you know that's when durant chose the warriors that's when lebron went to cleveland and so many of those and Giannis chose to stay which is fantastic and We'll see. We'll see where it goes. But I do think you might be right with the the trendsetter idea. Well, who, whomever that ends up being, and Beal's a fascinating case. But I mean, it sounds like I mean they're just they're thumbing and wheezing, not necessarily off a cliff. I mean, whatever, whatever, whatever you're going to see it. And I, the answer might be also I think completely plausibly that. Some of those players sign the contract with the intention of staying there, but then there maybe they have some sort of understanding that if that if not when, but if things go sour, that they'll reassess. Yeah. So if if Anthony Davis is the precedent, and guys are just like, yeah, let me secure the money, and if I want to demand a trade, because that clearly was not part of the arrangement, given how uh, sour things got between everybody. It, it was certainly no appears. It, it certainly appears that you are correct. Right. If that becomes the precedent, I think owners are going to, and probably really should. And I'm a big player empowerment guy overall, but should push back on it a little bit. Right. Uh, you know, you signed a contract, you got to play that out. Uh, you know, you can request a trade, but we don't have to honor it. I, I do think right now owners are just taken, right? Like James Harden threw a fit in Houston to get his, his way out. Jimmy Butler threw a fit in Minnesota to get his way out. Uh, they never got fined or suspended by the team or, or faced really any consequences for doing that because because it's so rare, owners are just taking it. But if that just became commonplace, I do think owners would do something to swing the balance back. Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you think about how like my my concern about a letter of the law is basically that you're giving too much power to the team, and teams just are not aggressively using that right now. And part of that is you're not this isn't Machiavelli, and you're not it's not a zero sum game because players' reputations and agents and everything else like persist beyond it. It's nothing is a zero sum mm-hmm. game. But there's also a dynamic that I think we saw in Houston, which is your team isn't just one player. And I think that when stars act out, there is also a potential that if you basically let them do whatever they want, that that creates other other problems. And you can argue that eventually those are worth it and, and you get into all that sort of stuff. But it's like 
it seemed like it was from the reading the tea leaves that it was exhausting for the other rockets to be around for all of that nonsense. Oh, I don't think you have to read the tea leaves. I think uh, by the end... Yeah, I think I, you just read the leaves. John like, Wall, DeMarcus, DeMarcus Cousins. Cousins. I, I think they were quite happy to talk about we did not like this situation. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is... And the other frustration for me, um, and this kind of ties in with some of the Zion stuff that we talked about before, I much prefer when... you know, And, and I think players and teams can ignore the media scuttlebutt as much as they want, and I think they, sh- they should not focus on it as much as some think they do. But I'm much more comfortable, personally, with the dynamic of speculating about pending free agents and gaming that out of, oh, you know, Kawhi Leonard's a free agent, what's he going to do? Then thinking everyone who's under contract is a potential domino. Like yeah. it is, you can do it and people have done it forever, but I, I personally, it, I'm more comfortable. It is in my, in my like transactional wheelhouse <laughs> to say Giannis signed with the Bucks. He's going to be a buck unless things dramatically change. And if they dramatically change, then something could happen. Going more the and that he signed it intending to be there and all that. If we reach a point, and I think you could be right that the Anthony Davis situation is a precedent, then this part of our work gets both harder, which I don't, I'm not going to complain about at all, but also like more unsettling, like unseemly, like all that type of stuff. I, I just I don't like where that would go. So I think we're already there in a sense, but, but I'm just going to say free agents. And I was thinking about this in terms of how we do like the mock off season. So I'm not sure there's a way around it uh, because I'm guessing you do it similar to me. You kind of look at, you know, hey, we each have 10 teams and you say, well, OK, let me just quickly look at this team. What are their what mechanisms do they have to have players? Oh, they got this much cap space. What players do they need? Uh, what players could be available with this much cap space? Uh, and and then, you know, throughout the year, we do that with all 30 teams, right? You say, you know, you keep an eye on those types of things. But if you are a team in the NBA, you're an NBA general manager, and you want a put like, you're running your team, I don't think that's how you should look at it. I don't think, increasingly, I don't think that is how they look at it. Um, I think the Heat are a great example of this with Jimmy Butler. They said, we want Jimmy Butler. And then they said, let's figure out how to make it happen. Where we, I think, generally, studying the whole league come across, like I said, we would have looked at it as, okay, what could they get? Oh, they could get somebody with a mid-level exception. Like, let's not even think too hard about Jimmy Butler. Where they're looking at a player, let's figure out a way to make it happen. Uh, I think and, I mean, they were originally going to trade Dragic. There were, like, all those mm-hmm. different iterations that, that, that the eventual deal went through before it got there. Mm-hmm. And, and it can happen with players who are under contract, too. And I, I think that well, Miami thinks about transactions less linearly than anybody, which is mostly a credit to their front office. But... It is it is useful. I, I think that I think that you're right. And also like there sometimes teams think nonlinearly and it's a real mistake. Like to me I go back to that Vladi Divots, you know, giving up all giving up what became the Lakings pick to clear cap space for no one. Like it <laughs> right. can happen or you know, like the other example is I refer to it as the Ibaka situation, which was when, when Rob Hennigan traded for Ibaka on Orlando, the you identify a player, you're feeling pressure that you probably, that, well, maybe that you should feel, but you get into that circumstance of like the, the mistake, anticipating mistake traits is another really interesting one. So that one, I'm not sure how well it fits. It might, it might not. It's a different like, thing. Well, like, did, a, did Hennigan say, like, I want Serge Ibaka, let's figure out how to make it happen? Or did he say, I got Victor Oladipo at, as a trade ship, let me see what I can get? Because cause you and I, how we look at it generally, we could we would look at it through that view for a team, right? It's, 
oh, okay, they, they were going to try and trade Oladipo, who could they get? Uh, the other example I'd give where I do think it was looking at it through, let me just pick some players and figure out how to make it happen. I think Troy Weaver kind of did it this summer. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, you're going to sign Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumlee. And like, like, how is that going to work? And he just said, I want those guys, and then figured out a way to get them is what it feels like. Yeah, it does feel that way. And adding Zyra Smith so they could stretch him and some of the other stuff <laughs> kind of kind of, kind of of squares with that. Um Actually, I'll, because you're, you know, geographically closest to the Pistons and you do you do follow them pretty closely. Mm-hmm. What is your interpretation of, like, so I've been very critical of Troy Weaver's 2020 offseason with the idea of, like, the, the idea that they were trying to be more competitive and failed. But there's also some, you know, Troy Weaver said things that basically that they weren't trying as aggressively for that. How do, where do you kind of come down on how, how they should read this season and, and more importantly, in some ways, last year's offseason? So I think... The two most important things for a general manager are assessing where your team is, where you're trying to go. Because if you don't time it right, that's when you really run into trouble. You need to know how good you're going to be. You don't want to push in your assets too soon. You don't want to push them in too late. You've got to really time it right of, you know, what, when do you want things to come together? Uh, the other thing that I think is most important is talent evaluation, particularly with the draft. Uh, it's very hard to do, uh, but if you can beat the market in choosing players, you can be in good shape. I think Troy Weaver did not look so good in timing things. Uh, I still have those concerns. Jeremy Grant has exceeded my expectations, but he hasn't exceeded them in a way that changes where the Pistons are. He hasn't made them good. Uh, same with Mason Plumlee. Uh, Mason Plumlee has definitely exceeded my expectations, but even with both of them exceeding expectations, the Pistons still stink. Uh, but his draft picks look good. Uh, and so if Troy Weaver can dependably hit in the draft, maybe he can even overcome. Maybe he's even bad at understanding uh, you know, how you want to time it, of, of having a team peak when they're actually ready to win something of significance. It doesn't have to be a championship. I'm not championship or bust. But to me, I, I'm not trying to be slightly better in the lottery versus slightly worse. That's the wrong way to do it. Uh, but if you just draft really well, and then this year, right, the Pistons are one of the worst teams. They could uh, get a very high pick and a draft that looks strong at the top if he nails that pick. Like, maybe his flaws as general manager just won't matter because you have uh, you have Killian Hayes, you have Isaiah Stewart, uh, you have Sadiq Bey, and maybe you have uh, a, a Cade Cunningham or whoever else they get in this draft. Like, they could be in really good shape despite me thinking they were still flaws last summer the other thing that and it's looking less crazy less aggressively true than it did at, at different points in this year but the bet on jeremy grant i mean like there was an idea nate now we're talking about like what if if theoretically troy weaver decided this is the this is the most i can get for jeremy grant right now we're not good right now get you know like let's say he pivoted in that sense and like they could have gotten first round picks like probably yeah. multiple for jeremy grant that is incredible for a unrestricted free agent like for somebody who you signed off another team like that is that is a genuine rarity now you can make an argument that that would have also happened for christian wood but anyway that's (laughs) that's a separate conversation but i think that that is another thing troy weaver got really right but what i've had trouble reconciling is just basically the idea of what did he think this team was and Mm -hmm. why why did they kind of do it in this way where you know they they sacrifice the the leverage with the stretches and all this kind of stuff, and you know the the team isn't particularly flexible over the next I think it's two years, but then there're more after that. So I I don't know all that. Um, but the other thing I want to ask you, so I and I agree with you, like Sadiq Bay, Isaiah Stewart, both looking very good for where they're drafted. The first thing I said when you were like he's drafting Super Bowl, I'm like, oh, Feldman really likes Killian Hayes more than I do. 
No, I thought Killian Hayes was like a, a good value in that draft in that spot. Uh, nothing crazy. But, it, you know, Isaiah Stewart's been very impressive. I, I had Isaiah Stewart rated too low. I had Sadiq Bey uh, rated well above where they got him. Uh, and he's looked really good. So, but the other catch with that is, oh, you draft well. You, the Pistons are down a first round pick because they traded one to get one of these extra picks uh, in this draft. Uh, so you better hope that hits when, when you're a bad team getting rid of first round picks. Yeah, that's very true. Anything else you want to touch on? I mean, we've we covered a lot well, of well, ground so, already. Well, well, while we're talking about the position, I, I got a question for you. Because, you know, this Jeremy Grant signing, yeah, it's a great accomplishment that you have a player that you could trade for two first-round picks. Jeremy Grant's doing awesome, uh, but he also wanted to come to Detroit. It wouldn't be so easy to keep your reputation, keep the cultural things you want if you just trade Jeremy Grant. Like, Jeremy Grant knew that he was going to a lesser team from Denver, even though he had the same offer of money. He wanted to be in Detroit for, for, for multiple reasons. Uh, but he wanted to be here. Uh, do you think that the Pistons will make the playoffs during Jeremy Grant's three-year contract? Now, we're one year in. So we're They're talking, we're, talking, we're using the traditional best of seven as the definition for playoffs. Playoffs are top eight. So if you, if you win through the play-in, you, you're in. Yeah, like the, the teams that make the first round, that's the playoffs. Not just the postseason. If you lose in the play-in, that doesn't count. What do you think the odds are that they make the playoffs during this contract with Jeremy Grant? Well, so... I'll you go, got two years. Yeah, because they're not obviously going to do it this year. Um, I guess it is technically possible, but no. Um, I would like 40%. Yeah, I think it's under 50. 40 is probably fair. I might go slightly lower, but somewhere around there. It's definitely possible. Like, it wouldn't be shocking for them to be a low-end playoff season. But this is what I talk about when I when I say, like, so much of the importance is it, it's not just Italian valuation. It's knowing when you want to add guys like this. And maybe Jeremy Grant can he's – a, he's a, definitely got a great work ethic. Uh, his skill development has been impressive. Maybe he can do some things where he's helping you set a culture, maybe. But also, you get a guy that's good, you want to win. Yeah. And especially when he's on a short enough contract and maybe he'll stick around, but like you don't know that the next contract is going to be good. And the other, the other important consideration, it's another one of those like intangibles that you and I have trouble with is I agree with you that in the pure, purest form, trading Jeremy Grant this shortly after he chose to join you is a bad look. However, through public and private means, you could also touch base with him to see maybe he become by virtue because it's easier to move a guy who's under contract. Maybe he thought they were going to be better. If he's comfortable with it, if he's happy with where things go, to basically be like, we like we'll ha- we're happy to keep you, but how would you feel about it? Like, let's say mm-hmm. the Boston Celtics because they have that big old trade exception. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one because he, I mean, James Edwards wrote a wrote a good article about this at the Athletic, where Jeremy Grant said, "Yeah, I'm I'm playing for a black general manager and a black coach in a black city. Uh, I can't tell you for sure how Jeremy Grant would feel about getting traded to the Celtics, but they don't. Boston doesn't have those things. It doesn't. And I mean, maybe it's possible that those were things that." he cared about but he also cares about other things too that the, sure. the pit like maybe he I, I really want to you know i i played in a conference finals last year i want to get back something like that and also you know the, and and so to me that is a conversation that will basically only ever be made public if you end up he ends <laughs> up saying yes and you trade him right but but in practicality i'm sure they happen all the time because yeah. they because they have to because it would be incompetence for them not to happen like I would so be having those conversations with everybody, even if I wasn't planning on trading a guy, just be like, just so I know what you're thinking. Like if right. I were a general manager, like 
I think players players in the regions would probably be pissed off at me for it, but I would have, be having those perspective conversations all the time. So I, I don't think you necessarily want to have the conversation all the time because you don't want Jeremy Grant to feel like, hey, look, we do, we, we're not totally committed to you. You want him to feel like you're totally committed to him if you are, but I would say that you definitely need to have your eye out for any signs that – uh, he's longing for a different situation in any way. Uh, and then you can talk to him about it. But look, if, if he came to Detroit and you guys talked about being fully committed to each other and he looks the part on his end, I don't know if I want to talk to him about maybe I'm not. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I, I, I think it's more, it wouldn't be in light of a perspective trade. It's just, I want to know where your head is. Like that, right. that's, that's, and because the, the truth of the matter is there isn't a wrong or a right answer to a lot of that. You can, mm-hmm. you know, he feels how he feels and you can can work with it either way but it's valuable information and it's information that he is capable of conveying if he wants to like but, right. but you do have to like and to me that's very different I, I would do it and part of for me if i were a general manager why i would do it all the time for everybody is because then it's not like oh my god they're gonna trade me it's just oh that's how he is Right. So that's why I think you have the conversation without talking about trade. You're just trying to gauge how happy are you here? You know, what what are your goals? What do you want? Like, how can we help you achieve them? And maybe you can figure out, oh, shoot, you know, based on his role, his situation, we're not going to be the team that that helps him achieve what he wants. Right. Exactly. And so if I were ever put in that position, that would be something important for me to discuss. Anywhere else you want to go? I think we covered a lot of stuff. I think we did, too. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me on. I always enjoy it. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at NBC's Pro Basketball Talk. You can also, of course, follow him on Twitter at Dan Feldman NBA, D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. Love having him on. And I like how Dan challenges me to think in different ways. Like we had that conversation about where extensions might be going. And he's always really good at that, especially with me. And to get into, like to get me to think about things in a little bit of a different way to challenge my kind of like my base assumptions and everything like that. And I think it's really good to to do that. I'm part of the reason I enjoy talking with Dan, both on this and, of course, away from this. And it is going to be a very fascinating offseason for some of those fronts to see if some of the extensions that have been signed in the last couple of years were a for now thing rather than a forever thing. And also to see what the limited remaining free agents end up doing with everything else and the incentives for the play-in and so many other things. So I am really interested to see where all of this goes from here. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. It's great if you do that, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, really wherever you can, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe there. That means for a show like this that doesn't come out a specific day of the week that it will just pop into your inbox. Sundays are less usual, but, you know, comes in when it comes in. You can also tell other people about the show, whether that is through word of mouth or by leaving a rating and a review. That is another great way for people to find the show, even though Real GM Radio has existed for a long time. You can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I do the Dunked On podcast. Our public episodes are once a week, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, whenever you listen to it. And then Dunked On Prime covers the rest of the week. And those are a lot of fun too. And then we do the NBA cast, which is through league pass in the regular season. And so that is every Monday and we do, we pick one game and we go, we broadcast it. And the great thing about doing it with league pass is we can show the game. So it's not, it's not the issue that we run into in some of the other stuff that we have to get you to sync up and everything else like that. And we're going to do 
new Clippers Pelicans for Monday the 26th, which is incredibly exciting. Point Zion and everything else that's going on. So looking forward to that. And then we'll be doing that throughout the rest of the regular season. And then after that, we'll shift into our quote unquote, our our old normal, I guess you could call it, um, where we have to sync up and we take questions and all that type of stuff. Well, we take questions using the hashtag and be cast either way, but we'll, we'll, you know, it'll be a little bit of a different experience. And so we'll go back to that once there are no more league pass games. And so we'll do that for the playoffs and we'll see on frequency, but it should be more frequent than the, the live show has been right now. Real GM Radio, of course, will be back next week. I don't know who my guest will be, but I'm excited about it and we will see where things go. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Are you and the person you care for not satisfied with your current home care agency? Then you need to call Help at Home as we offer the highest paid wages, weekly pay, overtime pay, benefits, and do not forget paid time off. Help at Home is actively recruiting caregivers who are caring for a loved one. We make changing agencies quick and easy. Call one of our care professionals now at 412-784-6711. That's 412-784-6711 or go to helpathomepa.com. 